Hi, I'm Elena Becker, and this is P.S., the Puget Sound podcast, where we're talking to members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. Today, our guest is Andy Marshall, an alum in the class of 2012. And because Andy lives in Boston, we're recording at the PRX Podcast Garage right here in Boston. Andy, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you. And the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is I told you when we walked in here, I think it's good to humble ourselves. So will you date yourself and share with everybody when you graduated from Puget Sound? So I am a proud member of the class of 2012, mm-hmm. um, which puts it now nine years ago or in the 10th year ago. Holy smokes. And since that time, what, what have you been up to? What has your trajectory looked like since you graduated? So when I graduated, I did not have a perfectly clear idea of what I wanted to do with my life moving forward. Good. (laughs) Um, But I had spent uh, four years working for the Office of Admission and various roles as a a tour guide and whatnot. And it was uh, just so happened that a couple of admission counselor positions were opening up and I applied for one of those and ended up spending six years working in the Office of Admission uh, for my alma mater, which was uh, an amazing experience and uh, really set me on a trajectory uh, for the rest of my life. So um, just this past academic year, I went to grad school and hey. uh, got a degree in higher education. And uh, now I work uh, at a, I guess, a consulting firm is the short answer word. Um, but we're an executive search consultancy. So I work placing leaders in higher education. So if a school wants to hire a new president or a new dean, um, we will come in and help the institution in doing that. And rest assured that I'm going to circle back to the long version of many of those uh, signposts. Let me first say to close the loop for anybody listening that uh, one of the ways that you and I know each other is, of course, that I took your job when you went to graduate <laughs> school. So I owe you a thank you for that. I have the job that you had prior to your master's degree. That is true. And uh, they did well. It's an upgrade. Well, I don't I don't have a snappy comeback for that, but <laughs> I appreciate that nice compliment. Uh, but of course, you had a forward trajectory too. So where do you go to grad school, Andy? I went to Harvard. You, uh, you sure did go to Harvard. <laughs> Said with you. all the enthusiasm befitting a Harvard alum. <laughs> How did you settle on that program? Well, actually, let me ask you a different question first, and then I, maybe this will lead to that question. But I think like a lot of people, you mentioned that when you graduated from Puget Sound, you maybe didn't have a perfectly clear idea of where you were going to apply the things you liked about your education. What happened in the intervening, I think you said six years, is that right? To make you realize that what you wanted to pursue was a master's in higher ed. And then within that question, what led you to do that at Harvard? Sure. So I, like many graduates, um, came away with a love of Puget Sound and was sincerely grateful for the transformation that I'd undergone as a person during my time as a student. And so the initial impetus to stay in the admission office was I get to keep talking and working and being all about Puget Sound. Right. Um, Because that was a place that I'd grown to love and felt exceedingly comfortable. And I had really made great relationships with individuals, uh, both in the office of admission and around campus. Over the six years, as I grew to learn more about the field of admission and by extension, higher education and kind of the systems and processes and tensions and forces and everything that goes into higher education and how it works, it turns out I really liked that too (laughs) and found that really interesting. Um, And specifically, I had the opportunity to work for two different presidents while I was at Puget Sound. 
and also a couple of different vice presidents, um, really influential leaders in the field of higher education, but with different styles, to be sure. And I really found myself being drawn to higher education leadership and mm. uh, in how these different leaders that I had worked for had come to be in those positions of leadership um, and the paths they had taken and the experiences that had made them ready and qualified for those uh, different positions. So that really became a kind of a, an area of academic focus. And um, that, I think, more than anything else, spurred me to say, I want to get better at this and study this at a higher level and maybe make this something that I actually pursue long term. And again, just for anybody listening, and to some extent, actually, for me, too, would you just expand a little bit on what the academic study of higher education as a subject is? How, how is that different than maybe being a college instructor? And then how is the study of higher ed different than somebody who would, say, want to be like a, a high school administrator? Sure. Um, so it's very uh, it's an interesting concept, right, because it is higher education. I'm in college to study college. Right. <laughs> um, and so it, it requires you to remove yourself a little bit from the situation. And we use a lot of uh, third person language in our, <laughs> in our conversations. Um, but it, it is very much, uh, you can take it in a number of different ways, but it, it is literally um, just the basic question of how higher education works. Um, and then you can name any number of sub questions. So for whom does it work? Right. Um, how much money does it take to make it work well? Um, how much money does it take to work well for person A versus person B? Mm. Um, all these different distinctions on um, what happens to a student when they decide to go to college, when they finish college, when they maybe don't finish college, um, or what happens to an academic when they decide to be a college professor as opposed to going to work for a, a biomed engineering company and developing pharmaceuticals. Right. Uh, so. I happen to take it more in the way of uh, the latter um, and mm -hmm. looking at the the professionals, uh, the professors and the the deans and presidents rather than college students. I would say that put me in the minority of my classmates uh, in the higher education program. Uh, most of them were more interested in students and how they functioned and uh, were impacted by the systems of college. But um, I really spent my time focusing on kind of the, the leadership units in institutions. And I think to some extent, it's probably self-evident why that is an interest that would grow out of working in higher ed administration. Um, it is certainly self-evident to me as somebody who works in higher ed administration, but I realize that I am probably not the uh, baseline audience there. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about, as you started to realize that those questions were of interest to you, and as you started to um, maybe grow a little more into the strategy of the work and some of the higher level planning rather than just the executing of doing a job. What about those types of questions sort of funneled down into you deciding to do your master's degree at Harvard? What about that particular program? Yeah. Um, so I spent a lot of time kind of researching various programs like we all do when we decide to go to undergraduate college or graduate school. And it became clear that among higher education programs, most of them had some sort of advertising line that said, we'll prepare you to be a leader in higher education. Hmm. And what they meant by that was you will learn the skills in, say, student development theory or um, financing of higher education that any leader must know. Harvard was a little bit different in the fact that they said, we're actually going to have you study leadership as a standalone concept. Right. Um, so it's kind of, you know, do you need skills to be a leader or do you need leadership? And then you can learn the skills, kind of just two different ways to hmm. go 
at a single um, person or single problem. But so that really set Harvard apart from me as I was thinking about uh, the place I'd like to go. Um, and I should say that at that point, me going to Harvard still sounded ridiculous to me. <laughs> um, it did not sound like reality um, for the life of Andy Marshall. Um, and I'm lucky, and I think that many of my classmates had a similar experience where I had a mentor um, who said, you know, I know you, I know what you're interested in, I know the work you can do, you're qualified to apply to Harvard. Um, who was that person? Um, that was Fumio Sugihara, who was the director of admission, um, both when I was admitted as an undergrad student and then uh, for the first two years I worked professionally in the office. At Puget Sound. At Puget Sound. Yeah. Um, and he's been a, an excellent mentor and has stayed in touch and been a, a valuable resource to me across uh, several jobs after Puget Sound for him in various leadership roles. And was he right? Obviously, you got into Harvard, but once you got there, did you did you feel like you were in the right place? I did. Um, it academically checked all the boxes I was looking for. Yeah. I was I was able to study um, leadership both in the field of higher education and also just leadership generally. One of the really cool things that Harvard allows you to do is you can take courses from any of the thirteen Harvard schools that exist. I was, of course, in the School of Education. Um, but I was able to study leadership through also a business lens and do kind of the really traditional case method that business schools are so fond of advertising. And right. So that was a, a very unique experience and allowed me to look at leadership from lots of different angles. Um, and then it is a place where there's a lot of highly qualified and passionate <laughs> educators. <laughs> and uh, there is something intangible, um, dare I say, intoxicating about just being in that atmosphere for the nine months that I was an active student and um, it was really energizing to be around so much passion and so many ideas uh, about the field that I'd grown to love. So it was it was the right choice. In that field and in that program, did you find that leadership as sort of a discrete concept remained your interest? Did you change your mind? No, I did not change my mind. I, th I think, if anything, um, my my belief that leadership is perhaps the most important component in successful higher education or successful educational organizations uh, only intensified. Yeah. Because um, unfortunately in the climate of today, so much of our conversation was about situations of constraint or deficit, mostly financial, um, that institutions are facing. And so, so often you'd find that an exceptional leader was the difference between success mm -hmm. and failure. And so figuring out how we can put more successful leaders in place for organizations, I think is something that is tremendously important. And given that that is such a passion of yours, it makes a lot of sense to me where you've landed professionally now. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a, a really perfect follow-up. Um, I say that now with three and a half months of experience <laughs> under my belt, sure. so <laughs> there's a caveat there. But um, it was, it's been a really perfect transition where I spent nine months studying in kind of an academic and theoretical model, leadership in higher education. And now I am uh, just in the trenches and at a very practical level interacting with uh, both questions of leadership and then leaders themselves um, and trying to, to match those up. So I'm getting to hear all sorts of real world problems and real world tensions, uh, some of which are just harder to address in a theoretical academic sense. And I imagine that for you too, as somebody who worked at your alma mater, immediately after graduating, there's probably something really cool about being able to see how the 
themes and challenges and opportunities that you were aware of at Puget Sound are manifesting at other institutions? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's It's been kind of that I was able to be so intimately involved at one institution has provided kind of a great backboard to bounce both similarities and differences off of um, and given me a real kind of tool or firm ground to stand on as I've had to navigate a lot of new stuff because um, Puget Sound is, of course, just one version of any institution. Um, but it's it's been invaluable, and I still I still use my experience every single day. Like what you hear? I'm Tori Henson, Assistant Director of Admission at Puget Sound, working with students in the Mid-Atlantic and the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as all of our transfer students. If you have questions about becoming a logger, email us at admission at pugetsound.edu. We'd love to connect. Andy, one of the reasons that I am particularly excited to talk to you and have you on the podcast is that by nature, PS, the Puget Sound podcast, is focused on one type of institution. And because of that, because we are talking almost exclusively, if not exclusively, with people that are affiliated in some way with Puget Sound, a lot of those folks share a very similar lens on the college experience. I think that you are particularly unique in that you have had really this um, deep experience of Puget Sound as a liberal arts college, as, as a prospective student, as a student, as a staff member, now you're involved as an alum, but you are also somebody that has attended a big university. You have been a Harvard student. And of course, as we've been talking about, you now work in higher ed. And so you get in many ways a front row seat to the workings of a lot of different um, institutions. That to me is actually a, the, a broad perspective that I don't think is reflected very often in the types of conversations that I have on this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me ask a question to follow that up. Um, what, so one of the reasons, given all of that, that I am interested to talk to you is that I think you are really positioned to talk about where Puget Sound fits in the field of institutions, mm, okay. right? So if you maybe want to do a little bit of background on what the liberal arts are for anybody who's not sure and how that is um, distinct from some of the other types of colleges that exist. And then from your perspective, too, what is meaningful about the way Puget Sound does things? Oh, my goodness. All right. I know. That's a big question. You're going to regret that you asked for it. Yeah, <laughs> this is broad. All right. So liberal arts, I think, to me, is really um, kind of at a very basic level uh, a well-rounded process of going to college, mm. um, a well-rounded field of study. Um, liberal arts, uh, meaning not liberal politically, but liberal right. in the sense that you study lots of different stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, one of the basic structural differences that you deal with here is that Puget Sound is one organization. You, know, you apply to the University of Puget Sound, and when you're admitted to Puget Sound, you are eligible to study biology or classics or anything in between or outside or both um, all at the same time. The other end of that spectrum is maybe our you know, traditional state school, a land-grant institution like the University of Washington, where you might apply to just the School of Arts and Sciences and you can study English there, or you might have to apply to the School of Biology and you can study biology there, but you can't necessarily do both right. and you can't study both at the same time. 
And so I think the value of liberal arts uh, in that I see and that I've heard you talk about on your show is <laughs> that uh, there are connections that exist between fields of study um, that are able to be made in a liberal arts institution because of all the crossover and the sense of one community that are just much harder to make at a big state institution where you're in one kind of siloed program. One of the things that I think you've just illustrated perfectly and that I think about a lot is that when a student is trying to decide where they're going to go for college, I think you have a trade-off about the type of education you pick and what it will make easy mm -hmm. and what it will require effort for. And I think what the liberal arts makes easy are those kinds of interdisciplinary connections, right? And that's the way the world works. You can't look at economics in a vacuum. You can't look at politics in a vacuum or biology in a vacuum. So to be able to kind of pick and choose, I don't love this analogy, but buffet style <laughs> sure. from an academic curriculum does prepare students really well in a really realistic way for the challenges of the world. What is some work with the liberal arts is figuring out where you're going to put those skills when mm -hmm. you graduate, because there aren't jobs labeled biology, anthropology, politics and government in the same way that there are jobs labeled dental hygiene or accounting sure. or architecture, right? If you study dental hygiene in college, you can be pretty confident you're not going to become an accountant when you graduate versus with a liberal arts degree, you have those opportunities. Yeah, I think, I think in a lot of senses that's true. And I think something that liberal arts schools today and uh, you as admissions professionals and I formerly as an admissions <laughs> professional and uh, still a, a fierce advocate for the liberal arts is that we need to do a better job of explaining yeah. how the skills you develop in, quote unquote, an English major translate into the real world and, uh, frankly, a real world job right. um, that will pay you money to do it. <laughs> but yeah. I don't remember if you and I have ever talked about this before, but for a little while when I was giving presentations to big groups of people, I would ask people to raise their hands if they could define out loud to the group what a liberal arts college was. And these were people who had traveled to campus, right? They were physically on the campus of a liberal arts college. That It's the demographic that you would expect, mm -hmm. maybe other than like alums of liberal arts colleges, to, to be able to do that. Um, and always I would get like sort of the slow hand raise, right? Yep. Where people who are not quite sure, and maybe from 20% of the room. And my next question would be, leave your hand up. Oh, no, sorry. First, it would be if you know what a liberal arts college is, put your hand up. And then leave your hand up if you are comfortable defining it to the group. And like almost every hand goes down. Yeah. Which to me is a testament to the fact that we don't do a good enough job explaining to people, here's what this means and here's what it turns into for you in your life. Yeah. And I think sometimes we maybe even spend too much time on trying to define the whole of the liberal arts and <laughs> say it's this neat, neat packaged thing that you're going to get um, in your college experience rather than saying, just going right to the point and saying, you know, you're a history major. And you're going to leave with the ability to take information from a bunch of disparate sources of varying quality, put it together into a, a coherent story, mm -hmm. and be able to make a decision based on that information. Because if you just say that, I mean, what CEO or <laughs> now as a consultant, that's what I do every day is right. you know, take a bunch of information, distill it down into a way that you can make strategy from it. And those are skills that everyone asks for. Um, you're not going to find an employer who doesn't want someone who can do that. Um, and so it's not that there's not value in talking about the full liberal arts and what that definition should be, and we should keep getting better at that. Um, but I don't think we should stop there. We should 
say these are really real tangible skills that you will get from that, uh, regardless of how nicely we can wrap the whole of the experience. And I think we do sometimes forget just how valuable those things are, especially like that was a great sentence, but in part because job postings don't often say, I would like someone who can take a lot of disparate sources and distill them into, right? They say like, I want someone who can use Salesforce or I want yep. someone who can use Excel. Um, but your point is absolutely correct, right? We all hear that and go, yeah, of course, everybody wants an employee who can communicate to people who are not like them, who can distinguish between relevant and irrelevant information quickly, who can write a good piece of writing fast, right? Those are really in-demand skills. And to understand that that's the outcome of this type of education, even though you won't take a class titled How to Distinguish Between Relevant yeah. and Irrelevant, <laughs> is a really powerful thing. Yeah, and I think that's that's where liberal arts schools and all of us, and I, I hope employers as well, will get better at um, connecting kind of the, the pureness of the classroom to the, the outcomes and um, how we can make that transition a little easier. And that's offices of current employment services mm -hmm. and I think faculty may be coming a little more to that um, to the help of transferring those skills into I mean even if it's just a language right um, that you can then relate to an employer and you might be saying the same thing and just you're talking past each other and if you yeah. can fix that problem um, all of a sudden you're right on the same page so and one of the things that I think is particularly true about that um, and actually, you were still affiliated with the university at this time, so you should say if you don't think this is true, but I think has maybe been an area of growth between when you graduated and when I graduated five years later is the concerted institutional effort to make sure that students attending and graduating from Puget Sound are having a chance to try out the application of those skills before they graduate. I think that's 100% true. Um, some of the most exciting work I saw Puget Sound doing while I was uh, in the latter half uh, of my time in the admission office, and I, I see it from afar still, is work around experiential learning. And yeah. Renee Houston, I'm not sure if you've had her on the podcast. You should if I, you have not. I, I should. I have not. So everybody can stay tuned for, yeah. <laughs> hope, I hope she agrees to it, <laughs> for a, a hopeful future podcast uh, with Renee Houston. But yeah, I, I think the school has done some really excellent uh, things in putting students into situations where they get to, to try all this stuff out with the school at their back as a supporting hand uh, before they have to go uh, you know, quote unquote, into the real world to mm -hmm. do it on their own. And what you're alluding to with the sort of supporting hand is actually one thing that I think is a crucially important piece of that. And something that I am so appreciative of as part of the spirit of Puget Sound is that having these kinds of opportunities to do internships or do research projects or study abroad or do community service projects are not understood to have value just because they're things on your resume that you can ace. Yeah. And in so many ways, actually, the way that I was encouraged while I was in school by my mentors or my peers or people who invested deeply in me, whether that was through mentorship or just through sort of passing interest, was this really repeated message that it's just as valuable to do something and find out that you don't like it mm -hmm. as it is to do it and find out that you do. Yeah. And to suddenly feel like, oh, the value of this experience is not going to be measured by how great I do that it can be just as valuable to say, I was really bad at that, right? Like I was <laughs> terrible at that. And I learned something, I'm going to improve, I'm going to do better next time. But to have that be understood as a productive and positive experience was a real game changer for me. Yeah. Yeah, I had, 
I had an experience uh, or the opportunity really uh, as a junior to go to Washington, D.C. I spent a semester there. I was a, one of the army of congressional interns. <laughs> and you um, were a PNG major. You were a politics and government major, yes, right? politics and government major. Um, so that's a very relevant thing to go do. Yeah, it was, it was really kind of the, the obvious choice as far as an internship. Um, it came about uh, just like you said, I had one professor who mentioned this opportunity and I thought it sounded cool, and I went back and talked with him more, and you know, all of a right. sudden, I'm in I'm in D.C. and I'm interviewing in congressional offices, <laughs> um, and obviously, I didn't end up in politics. Right. Um, but those, you know, the skills that I learned as far as communication and networking and all that uh, through that experience, uh, while I don't use the uh, the literal kind of political uh, maneuvering that I might have picked up, <laughs> um, that really taught me a lot about just you know, working in the real world and being able to kind of navigate uh, a literal workspace um, as an employee. And those skills I'll take with me all the time. So I'm super grateful that I had that opportunity and was pushed to do that. It was a little outside of my comfort zone yeah. um, because it made, you know, experiences X, Y, and Z that I had after college that much more familiar and easy to navigate. You're um, transitioning perfectly for me into my <laughs> next question. So I owe you one for that which is that you have lived in a lot of different parts of the country. You're originally from the Midwest. You're from Minnesota. Moved to Tacoma for college. Yeah. Spent a summer, is that right, in D.C.? Uh, summer and a semester. A summer and a semester. Uh, and now live in Boston. Can you speak a little bit about in that um, landscape of great American <laughs> cities, what is it like to live in Tacoma? T- Tacoma's just the best. Um, I'm... I'm 14 months into Boston, and I miss Tacoma almost every day, at least every week. Um, <laughs> and uh, it Tacoma was a huge reason why I chose Puget Sound. Um, I had a, a wonderful professor or teacher, AP World History, in high school, and I was talking to her about college, and she said, if you don't know what you want to study, pick a part of the country you like living in. Um, That's I loved, a great piece of advice. I, yeah, I, I stand by that. Um, <laughs> it was wonderful. And I, I love mountains, um, and growing up in Minnesota, I have an affinity for water, of course. And, sure. Um, so, you know, in Tacoma, I went running on the, I mean, literally on a path next to the ocean every day, <laughs> looking at snow-capped mountains while I did so. Um, and then you're, you know, a 45-minute drive from one of the the biggest cities on the West Coast with all that the big city has to offer in Seattle. But you get to live in Tacoma, which is this communal place where, um, you're going to see people again if you run into them. Um, right. You're going to get to know people at the table next to you at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to pay for parking. You can walk That's, places. Uh, can there. I just say the ability to drive somewhere, <laughs> like drive to dinner and park? It's incredible. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I miss the ease. You know, it's not a... Uh, Boston doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, I don't need a spreadsheet and planning to, to go out um, when I'm in Tacoma. Um, so it... Uh, it again, I you know I I chose Puget Sound mostly for Puget Sound, and then just absolutely fell in love with the city of Tacoma, um, and just the the sheer number of different resources and things you can do from outdoors to city to community. Um, I have not found another place that's like that. Did you feel like your experience of Tacoma expanded over your time there? Right as you got more comfortable with campus, did you then move out into the nearby neighborhoods? Did you then branch out past? Like what was that? evolution like yeah I, de- I definitely uh agree with that or feel like that was my experience and i, I remember specifically um that spring break of my junior year um i didn't have plans i didn't go anywhere i just stayed on campus and uh i recommend everyone 
do that for a break at some point because you end up meeting lots of new people because there's just only so many people And you see them all in the sub every day. Yeah, you all all just ended up hanging out together and you meet new people. Um, But I remember, you know, the the couple of friends that also were on campus, we went and just explored the city in a way that I hadn't done before. Mm -hmm. Um, Just And that literally that meant, you know, just going to different neighborhoods, um, driving and parking there. Um, And (laughs) it uh, all of a sudden, you know, I I, ended that week, I was thinking to myself, wow, this place has a lot. It's really cool. Um, You know, went to new beaches that I hadn't been to before and new restaurants that I hadn't been to before. And um, I would say as a, just a regular person living there, not a student, um, <laughs> that, uh, that continued to grow and expand. And it was kind of cool living there from, uh, as an adult, 2012 to 2018, and the city kind of grew and expanded yeah. uh, in that time as well. And so kind of got to go along for the ride and uh, almost all of that growth and expansion is really positive and, um, really great to see the city thriving like that. And so, um, as someone who was there before some of that, it was, it was fun to kind of be a part of that excitement um, and see, hey, this is this is a place that people really want to be and is really growing. And um, yeah, it's you're making me miss it right now. <laughs> Andy, we conclude all of our conversations by asking everybody the same four questions. Question number one is, what's the best place on campus? Oh, this is a good one. Um, <laughs> I don't know that there's a name for it. You can help me if, okay. I, if I'm uh, if I'm wrong. But one of my favorite things about the campus is how uh, three dimensional it is, and that it's got a lot of height, and mostly that comes from these huge, awesome trees that mm. we have on campus. And so, in between um, Harnett and Thompson Hall, the Music Building, and Todd Field, there are a bunch of really tall trees. This is the most popular answer. This, this, I think this little glen of tree, well, not little, they're huge. <laughs> this forest has come up more than almost anything else in this question. Really? Yeah. yeah I, I'm not surprised. Um, and, it, you know, if you're there in the right time of day, the sun is shining through it. And oftentimes there's a little bit of cloud so you can really mm-hmm. see the rays of the sun. And then, you know, behind these trees, if you're looking from a certain angle, is kind of the expanse of Todd Field and then the dorms of South Quad. And so you get to kind of see all these different layers of both natural beauty and kind of the, the beauty that is the the campus all put together. And uh, that's that image or that picture often floats to mind when I'm thinking about the campus. What are you reading right now? I am reading uh, two different books. It's always it's always two. Um, <laughs> the, the first is uh, A Gentleman in Moscow um, mm. by Amor Tolls. Um, and uh, it's fantastic uh, about a a member of the bourgeoisie, a kind of unrepentant member of the bourgeoisie <laughs> in uh, early 1920s Russia, um, but who has, through his poetry, kind of some cachet with um, the revolutionaries. And so he's allowed to live, but under house arrest. And he <laughs> lives in this hotel through 30 years of Russian history, including World War II and almost the full period of Stalin, and kind of experiences it from this single hotel in downtown Moscow. And it's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, and then the second is, uh, it's called An Army at Dawn, and it's by Rick Atkinson. And it looks at uh, World War II um, from the time that the United States and the Allies um, landed in North Africa hmm. um, and kind of fought their way across Africa. And uh, it's been fascinating because I think, like a lot of people, my World War II history kind of goes D-Day, or, <laughs> or excuse me, Pearl Harbor and then D-Day. Yeah. Um, and there were, there were years in between. <laughs> um, and so it's... You know, kind of this this young, inexperienced army and a young, inexperienced Eisenhower and Patton mm. kind of, you know, uh, learning. 
um, how to be an effective army. And uh, it's been fascinating so far. What's the best place to eat in Tacoma? Um, so it, I went back and forth there's because there's so <laughs> many. Um, but uh, I, I have to land on the Parkway Tavern. Um, and I will, I will say up front, this is a, a 21 and older establishment. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I enjoyed it uh, only my last year as a student. Um, but it, it has very little to do with that aspect of it and much more with the community that's in there. Um, and I guess I'll tell two stories if you don't mind. I, I'm, please um, do. So the first uh, was, a, it's just a really magical thing that impacted my time in Tacoma. Um, the backstory is such that there was an employee of Puget Sound. Um, she was an athletic trainer um, and very tragically uh, passed away from cancer. And some of the other athletic trainers um, from both Puget Sound and the University of Crosstown, Pacific Lutheran, uh, they gathered at the parkway to kind of deal with it and talk about it and uh, at times literally, you know, plan a memorial service for her. And that group stayed together and met every Wednesday through when I left to come out to Boston. Um, and they were so amazing about anyone who, like me, kind of found themselves in Tacoma and a member of the community was invited into this group. And people came and people went and some of my very best friends in the world I met kind of mm. through this group that uh, evolved out of these uh, Wednesday night gatherings. So that uh, just sitting there with that group as it evolved over the six years, I was kind of an active part of it. It was a huge part of my life. And uh, so the, the parkway will always be kind of the, the tapestry of that. Mm. Um, and uh, then, so I've, I kind of was in that and I'm the oldest in my family. Um, and my youngest brother went to Puget Sound as well. And I was... And how many siblings do you have? I have two younger siblings. Okay. Um, so this is the youngest. He's five and a half years younger than I am. Okay. Um, so I was an admission counselor at this point, And um, my parents had just dropped, you know, their youngest child off at college. And he's staying in the dorms. And, you know, it's a huge seminal moment in their life. And um, Right, because they're empty nesters. They're they empty, go from yeah. three kids to, yeah. They're empty nesters now. So... Uh, I say, you know, let's let's go get a meal. Right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so at, at the time I was living uh, fairly close to the parkway. And so I took them in there. And um, this is this is natural. And it's not just me. The, the person behind the bar agreed to be my name <laughs> and said, oh, are these your parents? And, oh, we, you know, <laughs> it's so great to have Andy here. And it's great to meet you. And, you know, they brought him out some different samples of uh, whatever was on the menu that night. Um, and they would do that for anyone and their parents. <laughs> it definitely right. wasn't just an Andy thing. <laughs> but for like two years, I had aunts and uncles who I, I didn't even know coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, we heard about this parkway. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it became it, it became kind of a place that my parents associated with uh, the wonderful community that is Tacoma. Um, and so it is, uh, it is really just kind of a special gathering place and kind of encompasses the whole of my Tacoma experience. Lastly, Andy, what makes Puget Sound special? Um, I do think it's the community. Um, I know I've, I've heard that answer before, and I will uh, reiterate it here. And really, it's it's just how many different aspects of a full college kind of come together with really without much ego and without much pretense. And kind of what I mean by that or how it manifested for me was that I was, like you said, a politics and government major, and I worked in the admission office as a, a relatively low-level employee of the college. <laughs> 
And, you know, I count among my friends from that time the head football coach. Um, and you can't see me on podcast, but I'm not built to play football. That was not my sport. Um, so you know, the head football coach, um, one of the you know, biology professor, um, members of the financial aid staff and academic advising and, you know, folks with PhDs and folks who'd been in Tacoma for their whole life and those who had just gotten there. And everyone kind of approached uh, each other with kind of a, a sense of equality and say, hey, we're just part of this Puget Sound community and you don't need any more qualification than that to hang out. Hmm. Um, and I, I remember at the end of my time as an admission counselor, I was telling the story of it was, we were at a basketball game. I don't remember um, when it was or who, who we were playing, but I remember that I was sitting with the head football coach and the associate vice president for institutional advancement <laughs> and the chair of the business program and a biology professor. And A, that was a really normal group to be sitting with watching a basketball game. <laughs> And B, you know, students would be walking by and occasionally they'd stop and talk. And whenever that happened, more than one person in that group would know the student and right. the student would know more than one person in the group. And so just like, it's kind of the same thing I said about Harvard. That's intoxicating to be around all that expertise and energy and then just the goodwill and camaraderie and friendship that ties it all together. So um, it's the community without a doubt. Andy Marshall, thank you for joining me on the Puget Sound podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Elena. Thank you to our guest and to you, the listener. You can follow Puget Sound on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of P.S., the Puget Sound podcast. <laughs>